Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. KFI AM 640. Heard everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. On any given day in Southern California, hundreds of investigators are working more than 10,000 unsolved cases. That's thousands of friends and families who have lost loved ones, thousands of people who got away with a crime, and thousands of murderers who still walk the streets, killers who may be your neighbor, go to your church, or could be dating a close friend. For the next two hours, we'll highlight cases that have gone cold baffled investigators or just need that one witness to speak up. This is Unsolved with Steve Gregory. In 2005, a 17-year-old boy was showing off his bedroom in a video. It was also a makeshift studio where he worked on his music. The video was part of a high school project. Just a few years later, that boy would go on to sell some of his music to hip-hop legend Ice Cube, and his parents say singers Rihanna and Britney Spears were also interested in working with him. But that would never happen. That young man would be shot to death outside of the very studio where his career was about to take off. This is the case of Kevin Robert Harris II. Joining us now from the FBI's field office in Los Angeles is Agent Sean Sterley. He's a case agent on the shooting death of Kevin Robert Harris II. This happened in uh, 2009. Um, agent, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for, for having me. Really appreciate it. So, Agent, i got to go back. Uh, first of all, let's start with an overview of the case. Tell us, tell us what you know. Well, on uh, it was a Sunday night, uh, September 20th, 2009, um, approximately 8 p.m. at uh, 3317 West 118th Place in Inglewood, California. Um, Kevin Harris II uh, pulled up uh, at that address uh, to go to go to the studio. There was a you know it was a residential neighborhood uh, converted garage that they had made into a studio, and uh, a lot of 
you know, rappers, singers, and produ- music producers would go in there and work. So uh, he showed up there at 8 o'clock to, uh, to do a session. And uh, before he was able to even, you know, get his car out of reverse uh, while parking it, uh, another uh, dark-colored sedan pulled up next to him, very close to him, within pro- probably about six inches from him. And, um, you know, between, between 10 and 20 uh, shots were fired, and, uh, and Kevin uh, was killed and died there that night. When there's that much gunfire, based on your experience, Agent, that many shots at one individual, is that an indicator of something? Yes, for sure. I mean, it, based on my experience, uh, you know, when you've got that many shots, it's usually something something personal is involved, right? Um, usually in, you know, I've worked uh, gangs and violent crime for, you know, 20 of my 24 years in the FBI, um, and when when it when it has to do with you know overkill shall we say um it usually has some sort of uh personal uh personal relation to to between the two between the victim and the suspect well and this happened in Inglewood so how did the FBI get involved in this and why well in the FBI and Inglewood police department have, have traditionally always had a very good relationship um through task force, gang task force, and things like that, and in uh, two thousand, you know, two thousand thirteen, I came back from FBI headquarters um, after being a supervisor there, and uh, the uh, deputy chief there at Inglewood uh, asked if I would take a look at this case that had, you know, at that time was you know four years, uh, four years old. But uh, had always just really bothered the department that it wasn't wasn't solved, and you know we were able to through the I think it was the the uh, Violent Crime Act of 2012, which uh, when Congress, um, you know, uh, voted that into legislation, the uh, that kind of gave permission to federal agencies to provide help for uh, smaller local agencies. In investigating crimes, you know, okay. no, no. I'm just saying. I, I'm, I, I'm glad you explained that because I was wondering: is that was that common for a federal agency just to kind of help out like that without it being a formal big deal, formal investigation, task force kind of thing? Or do you guys just? Correct. Yeah, not. It definitely wasn't. Definitely, at least in my experience here in Southern California, and I haven't heard of it, you know, from any of my colleagues around the country, that that was a very commonplace. Yeah. Uh, but that 2012 uh, Violent Crime Act really kind of opened that up to, you know, the possibilities of of assisting. But, you know, not just, you know, because the FBI would always send things to the lab, back to Quantico, say, you know, whether it was DNA or uh, fingerprints or tire tracks or whatnot, like things like that, and that kind of assisting role. But the uh, the Violent Crime Act kind of, you know, opened the doors to being able to investigate, you know, become you know on the ground investigators with the local homicide detectives. We're talking with Agent Sean Sterley with the FBI uh, about the case of Kevin Robert Harris the second. He was shot and killed uh, September twentieth, twenty o nine. Uh, this relationship between the feds and the locals is kind of interesting to me because it's like it always seems every law enforcement agency, whether it's federal, regional, state, local, 
is always understaffed and underfunded. So yeah. how how do you determine if you've got the time to help out a, a, a tiny department like Inglewood? You know, it's a uh, yeah, it's funny. I mean, there is definitely no set formula that uh, you know that goes into play there. I think a lot. You know, when it comes down to it. It, based on my experience is a lot of interpersonal relationships and things that, you know, um, you know, whether it's been with Inglewood PD or the Los Angeles police department, which I've worked task primarily worked task forces with over the, the last 24 years, you know, it, it's the relationships you form, uh, for me, you know, 20 plus years ago, working with somebody who's now a captain or a deputy chief or something like mm. that. And, um, and if there's a case that, um, you know, has a particular, I don't know what you, you'd call it, just but there's something special something about special it. Something special about it yeah. there. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, something, you yeah, know, I, right. I, I get it. And it's something that might be of interest or something that maybe you know you can help with. Maybe Correct. there's there's a resource with the FBI that maybe the Inglewood PD doesn't have. Right. Yeah. Like oh, that. Yeah, 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 for sure. Especially, I mean, LAPD is, you know, you know, great law enforcement agency with, you know, tons of resources. Your smaller departments such as Inglewood, mm -hmm. you know, they're not going to have quite, you know, the you know the, I I'm trying to think off the top of my head I'm guessing they probably have 250 agents where LAPD you know on the low end right you know right now probably have 9,000 and uh, so they they're just they're not going to have their own lab they're not going right. you know and all those kind of things they're not going to have their own you know aerial surveillance units etc and uh, those are the things that the FBI can bring to a smaller department like Inglewood that they can't you know that. LAPD in many instances, you know, doesn't even need because they've got they've got it handled themselves. So because of your friendship with uh, a command level person in Inglewood, you were able to take a look at this file and and mm -hmm. uh, and, and what was your initial assessment? You know, it the, initially, you know, I look I looked at it and I thought, I think, I mean, it's solvable. I mean, the, the you know during the time in two thousand nine when when this the you know when when Kevin was shot to death. Um, you know, there was a rash of shootings in Inglewood and I think it just like, and murders. And I, I know when a, a smaller department gets swamped with, uh, you know, a large number of, you know, murders or, you know, robberies or whatever it is, they just don't have the personnel to be able to work them all, you know, may, how should I say this, work them all, you know, as well as they would if, yeah, that was the only case they had to sure. worry about, right? Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, that's just the reality of of law enforcement and in the way things are. So, um, I think I mean they did a they did a they did a good job in a lot of aspects, but the the main thing is in cold cases uh, that I that I've learned on, in my experiences is they're solved by two things primarily, and it's and and I want you to hold on that. Okay. I want to know those two things, but first okay. we've got to take a break, okay? Okay, when good. we come All back, right. we're going to talk more with FBI agent Sean Sterley about the death of Kevin Robert Harris. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640 heard everywhere live on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory, and this is Unsolved. For more on this case, head over to our website at kfiam640.com, keyword unsolved. 
We're talking with FBI agent Sean Sterling. He's the case agent for the shooting death of Kevin Robert Harris II. It happened September 20th, 2009. He picked up the case a few years after it happened, and that was as a favor to the Inglewood Police Department. And before the break, agent, you were about to tell us, in your opinion, the two big things to consider when approaching a cold case. So what were they? Yeah, so when we started looking at, at uh, Kevin's murder, um, you know, the, the two things that uh, I found and, you know, I think every cold case investigator has found is that the two most prominent things to, that will improve your success of, of solving it are, one, changes in relationship or relationships, and two, uh, changes in technology. So as you get further uh, away from the date of the murder, um, you know, people are going to have falling outs. You know, pe some people are going to go to prison. Some people are going to move away that might not have, you know, were a little bit scared, to, you know, to, to speak up as a witness in these crimes. And now they've maybe moved out of state or something's taken, you know, jobs taken them somewhere. It's a big difference if you live down the street from your suspected shooter or, you know, you live 2,000 miles away. Um, so a lot of times those changes in relationships are going to provide you with clues that, you know, the original investigators at the time of the murder never had. The other thing is changes in technology. I mean, is, you know, kind of an old guy, but, you know, the, the, the leaps and bounds of every new Apple phone, every new, uh, you know, tablet or whatever that comes out, computer that comes out is just, uh, you know, crazy. They, it seems like they jump light years every three or four months. So as far as the abilities and the technologies that's been developed by, say, the Quantico lab to extract information from devices such as a, such as a, a victim's phone, um, you know, those those things have gone up so much. And in this case, that was a big that was a big plus for us is we were able to get into Kevin's phone a lot deeper than they were, you know, in, yeah. by the time we got, you know, the, the lab took a look at that. I think it was 2015. So it's six years of technology upgrades. So we were able to look and get into his phone much, much deeper than the original guys were back in 2009. And is that's just not, 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 not to ha say anything like, the Inglewoods, uh, oh, you, no, 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 you know, no, yeah. you know, it's just, that's just technology, yeah. you know, in six years, that's a big, that's a lot. I mean, one year yeah. is, a, is a big leap. It's light years, right? Yeah, you exactly. Know? So when you, when you approach something like that, then agent, do you still have to get a warrant for the phone and, and go through those processes? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there, there's, cause on any search warrant, there is a, uh, you know, uh, an expiration date, if you will, you know, it's got to be executed by a certain time. So even they, even if there was a, a warrant written to examine a phone, uh, say in 2009, yeah, we definitely, you, you've got to write a new search warrant to, um, to go into it again. So, but I mean, at that point, it's, it's, I think it's usually a pretty solid probable cause, you know, statement mm -hmm. to get in there. Just, you know, you write to the judge how, you know, just like we talked about how technology has improved right. so much and, you know, and then you've got all the, the uh, probable cause from the original search warrant on the victim's phone that was found, you know, in his vehicle when he was shot. So it was it was no problem getting the search warrant. Now, that's interesting to me, too. Um, by the way, we're talking with FBI agent Sean Sterling, the case agent for the shooting death of Kevin Robert Harris II. Um, you know, when you look back at the shooting and the, and, and the amount of rounds that were shot, 
um, and no one picked up the phone and no one tried to do anything to cover the scene or, or mask the scene at all, is that also an indicator of any kind? Correct. I mean, that's a, that's a, I mean, a huge indicator, uh, to law enforcement that it, well, the fact that his, you know, his phone is there, his computer, you know, his laptop computer was there with a, uh, external hard drive with all of his, you know, musical beats, which I mean, is a whole nother, you know, aspect to this, uh, right. We'll murder we can get bit, into, yeah. but I was going to say like, the thing is if it was a robbery, those things would not be there. Right. Um, the number of shots, yeah, that that's another thing that it's probably a personal, personal vendetta, um, you know, more of an execution, if you will, right? Um, where they're not interested in making money on it, it's mainly about making sure it was you know, Kevin Harris is dead. Correct, correct. Now, if it was a robbery gone bad, you know, they you know probably would have shot. You know, even if they shoot him, they shoot him a couple times, tops, and that and then that you know they're going to ransack the car for, you know whatever they can. And the phone was sitting right out in plain view, the laptop wow. and the, th those things would be missing. But the fact that they were there meant that it wasn't a botched robbery. And in something like this, it, it appears to me, just what you're telling me that this had to have happened very fast. Correct. Correct. Um, from, from eyewitnesses on the street that day or that night, I guess as it was kind of dusk, it was just getting dark about eight o'clock. But it was September 20th, so it's kind of right in that mm -hmm. twilight area. Um, so uh, Kevin's car pulled up at uh, 3317 West uh, 118th Place. And the, you know, the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the people who was on the street said that he just kind of pulled up and sort of like backed into the, uh, you know, parallel parked on the, on, the, on the curb and was, you know, was just there for a second, right? maybe 10 seconds and it looked like she uh the, the witness thought that um uh that kevin might have been looking at his phone okay you know just looking you know checking his text or something mm -hmm. like that 10 to 10 you know you know you never know i mean it's so tough when somebody as a witness experiences a traumatic event you know you got to kind of take their time 10 seconds could be 30 seconds I, I, sure sure according to this witness 10 seconds after uh, Kevin had pulled into his parking spot on the curb, not motor running, all that kind of stuff. Another dark-colored sedan pulled up right next to the car. And the there appeared to this witness that there was an ex maybe an exchange, a verbal exchange, possibly, because it wasn't right away that they heard shots. So, um, and the cars were really close. So the passenger... The front passenger, you know, door of the suspect car and the front driver door, mm -hmm. you know, where Kevin was, were, you know, the witness said maybe a half foot, six inches apart. So if he wanted to get out, he wasn't getting out, you know, like he couldn't even get out of the car, right? Wow. Because of the, uh, and also, you know, and it's been, you know, from back then, uh, you know, described and, and true that Kevin had his window down. So many of his friends said, uh, and he, and, and at the time, Kevin had been, had expressed concern to his folks and to a friend that he thought he was, you know, he thought he might be in trouble. So odds are, if he didn't know that person that pulled up next to him, he wouldn't have rolled his window down. 
We're talking with uh, Agent Sean Sterling. When we come back, we'll explore more about that. And also, I want to get into some other aspects of the case, including how important his music was to the industry. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640 heard everywhere, live on the iHeartRadio app. This is Unsolved. I'm Steve Gregory. To contact the show with a tip, story idea, or comment, you can dial pound 250 on your cell phone and say the keyword unsolved. That's pound 250 and the keyword unsolved. We're talking with FBI agent Sean Sterley from the L.A. office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation about the shooting death of Kevin Robert Harris II. It happened September 20th, 2009 in the city of Inglewood. The FBI picked it up a few years later, and uh, we've got case agent Sterling talking about that night of 2009. Before the break, you were talking about kind of a timeline of when, you know, when so the, the the dark sedan pulled up alongside Kevin's vehicle, how close it was. Now I'm thinking back to 09. The ring camera really wasn't out yet. Um, how about surveillance footage in the area? Anything that you could use? The um yeah, the you know the initial uh, crime scene, uh, they they scoured the neighborhood, canvassed the neighborhood uh, for video. You know, a home, just more home security sections. Ring really wasn't you know around, but mm-hmm. you know your regular security cameras still were. Um, they were able to um, Inglewood was able to get uh, a couple of them, a couple of security systems. You know that the, people had put up, but they'd. Didn't work, worked a little, you know, or hadn't stopped working. But uh, both um, uh, the the what DVRs or the right. whatever. Blank. Sorry, my mind's blanking on the uh, the yeah, actual. I know what you mean. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, the older we, the older recording. Correct. Yeah. Correct. The bigger, bulkier kind of cameras and. Yes, and so those were sent. To, you know, were were uh, examined, and you know, neither of them were recording on the night of September 9th, and then, unfortunately. Uh, was this mostly uh, residential or is this Correct. Mixed? Mostly residential? It is very, very much residential, you know, just right off of uh, Crenshaw Boulevard and, you know, a little north of the 105 freeway. Uh, but, you know, quiet residential neighborhood um, in the, you know, just had the music studio in a detached garage behind one of the uh, residences. Oh, I see. And, um, you know, it, the... And, and the the other thing on Sunday night, there were very few, if any, except Kevin, that came on Sunday night. So the the owner of the studio uh, usually kept that shut down, like that was the the night off. Uh, but you know, Kevin, being um, from from what he told me, always like really respectful, didn't make a lot of noise, didn't pro- cause problems. You know, like sometimes. Blocking the neighbor's driveway partially with their car. He's a good kid. Good kid, right? He was like the only guy that could that was uh, allowed to come in on Sunday nights, which was another significant, you know, clue. Like, you know, that the whoever whoever shot him knew that he Uh, he he was central. Yeah, yeah. When you look back at this, I mean, this guy, as I was reading a little background on him. He was really up and coming in terms of being a music producer and music writer. I'm, I'm looking at. Uh, you know, hip hop artist Ice Cube, Rihanna, right. Britney Spears were all either working with him or interested in working with him. Correct. Uh, so he was gaining quite a profile. Um, does his sort of his successful trajectory does that play into an indicator here? 
it's definitely, you know, that is definitely a strong possibility here as we've, uh, as we've looked into this case. Um, you know, I, you know, I, not that I knew a whole lot about the, the, uh, the music industry, the rap industry, uh, but I learned a lot over the last, uh, several years about it. And, um, he definitely was, as they would say, blowing up, I guess, yeah. you know, at that time yeah. where he was just, you know, he had just, you know, turned 21, you know, had gotten a placement on Ice Cube's album, at, um, Wild West, maybe, I think it was, um, Urbania, I think was the name of the song. Um, he had, had like, was getting play on some of the uh, radios with the Lady G song, Poppin' Bottles, I think it was called. So it's like, all of a sudden he became a hot, so it was coming becoming a hot commodity as far as, uh, the music world went is making beats for somebody, and yeah, they like um, Rihanna and Britney Spears had expressed interest in in him maybe making some tracks for them. It had been characterized uh, in an earlier interview and at least a statement that um, authorities believed someone very close to Kevin was behind his murder. Is that a proper assessment still? Yeah, definitely involved in the murder. Whether whether they were the trigger pullers, you know what. Yeah, I, I I would say yes. At the very beginning of our our chat, you said when you looked at the case, you said this is solvable. Mm -hmm. What jumped out at you to, to made you to make you say, make that statement? I think primarily just because it there were you know I just knew you know going back to the the changes in technology, I really thought what we could get off his phone, the additional stuff, and it got us a lot, it, it, and we were able to get a lot more Can you more tell stuff. us any, any um, examples of what you got that's helpful? Yeah. Well, I can I can't I can tell you in generalities that there were phone messages between he and another party of, of about when he was going to, you know, the other party you know, asking, "Hey, when are you mm -hmm. going to the studio? What time are you going to be there? Let oh. me know when you leave." Hmm. Kind of giving you a yeah, kind of a direction, if you will. Yeah. Um, so now that you've taken over the case and you you put your fresh eyes on this, uh, were you able to interview people from back then? Oh, I mean, we did, uh, you know, I think I counted, uh, pretty much, I think 70 interviews or over 70 interviews. Really? Yeah. I mean, we start, I mean, that's the other thing. And, um, you know, retired Los Angeles Police Department, Detective John Skaggs, who's a, you know, famous, uh, um, homicide investigator yeah. when he retired and I had worked with him when he was at the LAPD, you know, I was like, Hey, John, can you, you know, can you help me on this case? So, you know, he, he really, uh, you know, gave me some great, you know, pointers and then joined in on the investigation as far as with interviews and things like that. And, um, you know, his, uh, uh, his theories on things and it, it was, it was fantastic. But so we, we, um, we started at, you know, like like most murder cases, you want to start as close to the uh, the victim as possible, and then work out. So we just figured, you know, there were there were interviews done, but at that point, it had been you know six years, maybe it was 2015 by the time we were able to really get going on investigating the case, and um, so we just started in his inner circle and worked his way out, worked our way out, and looking for. You know the change. You know changes in relationship, changes in technology, right? So uh, anything, anything that would jump out, um, and then also with the technology, 
the people that were texting with them that night and things like that, trying to get, you know, trying to, trying to, trying to, you know, um, without giving it, giving too much, look at their inner circle and see what, what, what relationships had changed with them. So let me ask it to you this way. Um, Based on the, the the new set of interviews you've done, was there any stark differences in what you were able to glean from these interviews as opposed to what the initial investigators did? Not too much. I mean, we did a lot more, you know, um, just uh, like I said, when they were got hit with a barrage of murders at that time in 2009. And, you know, so we were able to do, you know, many more, you know, interview his in, entire inner circle and maybe that second circle out, you know. Uh, so, um but the one thing I, the, the one thing we used to, you know, the special agent uh, Ivan Romo, special agent Cody Burke, who assisted me with this on the FBI side, um, we used to just, uh, we used to laugh because, like, the, I don't know if I've ever dealt with, you know, somebody or, or interviewed this many people where nobody said anything bad about them. And it, it was pretty crazy. I mean, like, we, and, and we'd always say, okay, look, I, I realize you don't want to speak ill of the dead, but unless you tell us, like, who he had beefs with, who, who you know, did he ever, you know, whatever, you know, you got to tell us the bad stuff, too, or we, uh, you know, we'll never, you know, this case will never be solved. So do you got to, for Kevin, you got to, you know, if he's, you know, you got to talk about the warts, too, right? Right, right. And, uh, I mean, they're... <laughs> Yeah, n- none. And yeah. I mean, he's you know he's a good you know good looking kid, um, and he had a lot of girlfriends. But I mean, like you know every every one of them you know was, was like yeah he was one of the nicest guys I ever dated or met or anything you know they wouldn't even say anything bad about him. So when you're looking for something like that to give you another suspect, like yeah you know he kind of you know he ripped somebody off or he disrespected somebody here or there or this. You know, you're looking for that extra suspect that maybe wasn't found before, you know, just from we couldn't find it because nobody is like, was this guy, you know, was he a saint or what? You know, it's like it was crazy. Yeah. When we come back, I want to get some final thoughts from you, including what your working theory is. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640 heard everywhere live on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory, and this is Unsolved. If you have a comment, story idea, or a tip on any of the cases we've featured on the show, you can simply press the red microphone on the iHeartRadio app, or you can dial pound 250 on your cell phone and say the keyword unsolved. We're talking with Agent Sean Sterling with the FBI's Los Angeles field office about the shooting death of Kevin Robert Harris II happened on September 20th, 2009. And before the break, Agent, you were talking about the inner circle of Kevin and sort of you couldn't find anyone to say a bad word about the guy, which, you know, is unusual, you said, in your in your 20-plus year career. But um, what about the parents in this? Uh, how are they? Because sometimes some parents are so devastated by this, they, they don't want to talk about it at all. And then you've got the other parents that just all they want to do is talk about it. How did Kevin's parents play a role in this? Yeah, I mean, Kevin's... Kevin's parents were fantastic. Um, they, you know, I, I'll tell you what, I I would credit, you know, the fact that we couldn't, that Kevin was such a, a, a well-liked and loved young man was because of the uh, the way that his parents raised him, you know, uh, Kevin Harris Sr. and Catherine Harris. 
I mean, they did a phenomenal job of, of, of raising him. Um, and you know, they, uh, you know, you know, made sure he, he was in Catholic school all the way through grammar school and high school and all that kind of stuff and trying to keep him from, you know, running with the wrong crowd and everything like that. So, I mean, they really, they did it. They did a, you know, a great job of keeping him, you know, protected. And I mean, it's, it's so, you know, it's heartbreaking that I think he got in with the, you know, I don't know, say maybe possibly the wrong, uh, he did well, get in with the wrong crowd there. Eventually you can't, can't protect him forever. And yeah. they, but they did as good a job as they could. I, I mean, as possible, I would say. And, uh, yeah, they, they were just phenomenal and very helpful. That was the first, you know, actually besides his friends, they were the first pers- people we talked to just to get a, to a sense of who, you know, we had to learn who their, his top, you know, biggest friends were or best friends were. Hence, uh, we were talking to them, you know, initially and they said, we sat down with, I think I'm, I think for three, three plus hours one day and just, you know, the first time we met him and went through went through everything. And I know it was incredibly painful for him, but they were willing to, you know, and continue to be willing to go through the pain to relive some of this, you know, uh, agony again with the hopes of, you know, solving their son's murder. Is there a reward? Yes, there is. Um, There is a uh, reward that uh, $25,000, you know, has been offered by the FBI and uh, Inglewood Police Department had offered uh, Another twenty five thousand dollars. So there's a total of fifty thousand. Fifty thousand dollars in total available for information leading to the arrest, conviction. Now, you know what? Just uh, arrest. Just arrest. Arrest. arrest yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. So that's fifty thousand total. Out of the seventy plus interviews that you and your colleagues have done on this case, agent, do you believe you've spoken to the shooter? Spoken to the shooter? I don't think so. Um, I think you know. I think the. It's possible. It, it it is possible. I think there's. I'm gonna say a fifty fifty chance we've spoken to the shooter. I think there's. There, are there one or two individuals where your spidey sense got a little more active than others? Yeah. I yeah. I I think. Well, yes. And um, I think there was. You know, the working theory right now, is the people who set it up. Who knew where Kevin would be that night. Were not the people that pulled the trigger, so it was a. Um, so there's some accomplices. Oh yeah, for sure. And do you believe they're in the business, or do you believe they're friends? Do you believe they're enemies? What do you believe? Uh, I believed fr- uh, fringe uh, on the business in the business, or we're trying to get into the business. Because you fr- mentioned friend, friend, friends per. You know what they what they said to Kevin, but I don't. And when it came down to to brass tacks, yeah, they didn't have his best you, interest in heart. You touched on something though earlier because respect plays a huge yes. role in this relate in this culture. Correct in this hip hop culture in yep. this music culture, respect and something as simple as disrespect can get someone killed. Correct, correct. Um, is that a plausible theory in this case? You know, it it, it is a plausible theory. Um, the you know because it it. It's happened um, speaking to, you know, investigators from, you know, LAPD, you know, L.A. Uh, County Sheriff's Department, homicide investigators. Uh, you know, there have definitely been in the rap game, um, you know, people just from their lyrics and their songs, you know, if somebody feels disrespected, 
you know, there ends ends up being a, a shooting or a retaliation, uh, you know, with violence. So there's no doubt that 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 it was something we couldn't overlook. And I think I think that it's probably probably I think there's there's a Probably some of that without – I'm trying not to give up too much. I was going to say, and, you, you're having a really tough time <laughs> not being able to tell me what you want to tell me. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> I dan- dancing that. around. Uh, yeah, I apologize. Well, let me, but, let, me, you know, let, we me gotta... let me just ask you this because we got to wrap up. So I'm going to okay. ask it to you this way. Are you – Agent, are you closer to solving this case today than you were when you first set eyes on it? Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. 100%. And it's um, still solvable. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you know, we have – you know, from especially when uh, Detective Skaggs and I, you know, we're looking at it with the, uh, the DA's office. I mean, it's, you know, we kind of felt like, it, you know, it, it, it was 85 percent of the way there, you know, for reaching that threshold. So it's just, you know, we're missing. <laughs> could it be, you know, what I would say is could it be, could it be filed? Yeah, but it's a, it would be weak. I mean, mm-hmm. we, and there's a chance so it would just this close. Yes. And so what do you don't want to file, you know, you don't want to charge or one, you want to be sure that you got the right people. You never want to charge somebody Mm. incorrectly. That's that would be the worst. Um, But, the you know, the other thing is, even if you, you know, have the right people and you charge it before you have enough evidence, they end up. You kind of screw, you know, yeah, they end up being acquitted. Right. And then you, that evidence a year or two later, you know, comes out somewhere else like, oh, my God. But you can't retry on your side. Yeah. Yeah. one interesting thing I want to I want to ask you before we wrap up: What is your definition or the FBI's definition of a cold case? I think the you know I I'm not sure if there is a I guess I should know this, but I don't. No, but um, I mean, there's, there's <laughs> but there's no but there's no formula. Yeah, there. no, there there really isn't. I mean, you know, I think as a as a three years, I've heard, you know some people have said three years, mm-hmm. some people have said five years. Interesting. Um, but I mean, I mean, I, I would say you know, it just depends on the case. It's case, you know, case by case basis, right? Um, Sometimes you know, if if a case there's no, you know, you know, like after the first week or so, just nothing else comes up. I mean, sheesh, in in my opinion, that could be you know considered cold. You know, six eight months later, right? Uh, yeah. But if you're going straight by a time frame, I would say three to five years probably. So. And uh, what is it you want the public to do? What do you need from the public in this case? You know, this this is one this is one of those things where I mean, I we know there are people that that know more than we know about what happened the night of uh, September twentieth of two thousand nine. They know what happened, who was involved, uh, who did the shooting, um, why why Kevin was set up, um, and I mean we. You know, John Skaggs and I both believe that, you know, there were people that we talked to that were not giving us the truth um, and were holding back um, on, on what they knew happened. Um, but, I mean, like anything, I mean, there have been people I'm – sure, those people, I'm sure, have talked to other people, and that's what we need is somebody to come forward and say, hey, you know what, uh, so-and-so told me this – you know, told me what they did or – or something like that. We j- and then and we can run with it from that point on. And um, if they want to remain anonymous, hey, they can remain anonymous. Um, you know, not that 
you know, like somebody says, hey, it's points the finger at somebody and we're just going to go out and arrest them. It's like we have to, you know, you have to corroborate, you, all, you know, with evidence and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, um, yeah, that's that's what we're that's what we're hoping for. Um, so we're begging the public to to please help us out at this point because um, it, was, it was a tragic, totally unnecessary killing of uh of a good guy a really good guy and it devastated a family and the parents uh you know kevin senior and Catherine are you know phenomenal people and it just it's it's wrecked their lives you know i mean it's ugh, it's heartbreaking and it keeps us motivated i mean myself the other agents that have worked on it and detectives um to try to, to try to solve this for them so very good agent sean sterling appreciate your time very much and let's uh Let's hope this helps shake some trees, and I wish you all the success. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. For more on this case, go to KFIAM640.com, keyword unsolved. Coming up, we head out to Riverside for a gruesome case of rape and murder. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFIAM640. KFIAM640 heard everywhere live on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory, and this is Unsolved. Our next story contains graphic content. This is Riverside County Sheriff's case number A93089013, the sexual assault and murder of Sherry Herrera. We're joined now by Jason Corey. He's an investigator with the Riverside County Sheriff's Department and Mike Thompson. He's also an investigator, but he's with the Riverside County District Attorney's Office. They both are a part of a cold case unit that's working in Riverside County to solve these cold cases from years ago. And uh, we're talking today about one such case. 1993, a woman found in the desert near an on-ramp eastbound 10 freeway, 50 miles east of Palm Springs. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having us. Um, so, Jason, uh, give us an overview of this case. So on uh, March 30th of 1993, at um, uh, just about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, some folks just out enjoying, uh, trying to enjoy the desert, uh, uh, just about, like you said, about 50 miles east of Palm Springs, uh, they found um, the deceased body of, of Sherry Herrera, uh, just off of the, the, the road, um, off the uh, eastbound uh, on-ramp at Hayfield Road and Interstate 10 uh, uh, out there in the, in the desert. Uh, it, was, it was hot that day. It was about, uh, the investigators noted, it was about 80 to 85 degrees uh, with, with a slight wind blowing. And, um, uh, and these folks just happened upon a, a very, very gruesome scene. Um, and, uh, and Sherry was, um, uh, was strangled to death. And then um, the investigation picked up from there, and they just uh, Sherry was a um, a prostitute in the local area would bounce back and forth between uh, the Coachella Valley uh, and Blythe, I, I believe. Uh, Tulare. Tulare. Oh, all yeah, all the way up to Tulare, uh, and then uh, and then anywhere in between. Um, so there was uh, a lot of folks that that the investigators interviewed um, just in, in that world. Um, a lot of narcotics. Uh, uh, different. Uh, she had pimps. There were folks that uh, that they interviewed that were would send them to in, in different directions throughout the entire investigation, uh, and they ended up interviewing um, several several folks that that they thought were uh, were potential suspects. And what kinds of folks? When you say several folks. Uh, well, lo local local people out to out to the, the desert area. Um, the the 
folks that were local back then. Um, not too sure where they're at. Where they're at now, we ha I, I haven't uh, I haven't researched to find out where they are. Um, but uh, known travelers throughout the area, known known uh, drug users. Um, there were several different um, theories uh, that that Sherry had owed different folks uh, money for 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 drugs, uh, different things. Um, so it's you know the investigators were taking everything in and just kind of getting spun in different directions at at the time. This has got to be complicated too, Jason, because you are dealing with a prostitute, and um, that lifestyle lends itself to just multiple contacts in multiple locations. Um, possible multiple motives, uh, you know, how do you sift through all of that? Well, now I, I have the luxury of, of going back and, and, uh, and, and we do with, with all three of us, we have the luxury of going back and reading everything. And then, and then obviously, um, in cases where we were able to have, uh, where we get DNA, um, we're able to do, um, that, you know, that kind of, um, that helps us out tremendously because they didn't have that technology back then. So we're able to use that technology now where we're able to, um, I hate to say shortcut because we're certainly not shortcutting anything, but we're able to kind of work our way around all that nonsense that, you know, those different directions that they were thrown into before uh, with, you know, oh, well, well, you know, Sherry owed, you know, owed so-and-so money for, for dope or Sherry, you know, she crossed so-and-so, so they had her killed. Um, you know, those different directions that they, that they were, were directed in back then. So now with other forensic evidence that we're able to use, we're able to, you know, be able to, to peel back those layers and say, okay, no, well, this person is excluded now uh, through forensic evidence. This person is excluded through forensic evidence. And then, um, and so we're, so it makes it easier for us to, to utilize those tools uh, to sift through all of that and kind of say, okay, hey, this part is nonsense and, and we don't need to really focus on that. Was so. Sherry's body clothed? Uh, no. She was, she was naked? She was. And, and Par partially, partially, partially nude, yes from the top or the bottom uh bottom okay so you say she was strangled was she strangled with like a ligature or was it by hand with a ligature correct ligature actually and, i believe it was both i believe there was they determined that there was both uh, manual manual strangulation and and the ligature strangulation and was that the, that item found nearby mm -hmm. yes it was yes um that seems unusual or is that common uh, I don't know that it's... They had the ligature near the body? Or it's still it, on the body. Still on the body. Um, I don't know that it's all that uncommon. Okay. Must be all the TV I watch. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone trying, you know, trying to cover their tracks. So what does this tell you then, Jason, that you've got a, a partially clothed woman who's a prostitute near an on-ramp uh, with a ligature still around her neck... Um, what was it exactly? I don't recall what the exact, what the ligature was exactly. I, I would okay. be, was it a belt? I would be speculating. Belt, if, yeah. If I, yeah, I don't remember. Exactly so what, what does that tell you in terms of possible motive or, or whether this was a random or not random, but, um, a spontaneous act or calculated act? Well, I, I think it was probably a spontaneous act. Just, just the sheer fact that she's, she's out there dumped off the, the side of the, the freeway. Uh, in the in the desert, I mean that's. Um, however, when you know when I say that, I mean it doesn't say um, it's not to mean that that he could have killed her some elsewhere 
and then taken her there and, and, and dumped her in that location, thinking it was remote enough to, um, you know, get back on the freeway and, and, and escape. Um, so, but I, I don't think, you know, even in 1993, I don't think folks were even, you know, thinking of forensic evidence and leaving, you know, certain items of, of evidence, you know, right. nowadays, I think, you know, obviously people are a little more, um, understanding of that and they have a, they have a better knowledge of, of, you know, cleaning up a crime scene and, and, and collecting things that, that may, may identify them forensically at, at a later time. I think they're better at, at cleaning up after themselves now, whereas I, I think th those things that were left behind because, you know, then they didn't think that those would ever be used to, uh, to potentially identify them. Mike, you know, um, I know that you use this task force uses forensic genealogy. Uh, was that something you were able to employ here? We are, we are employing forensic genealogy on this case. Um, uh, the ethnic predictors on forensic genealogy aren't a hundred percent definitive, but our ethnic estimates are that this, uh, person is an African-American. Um, we have, uh, unfortunately, the genetic matches are quite distant. So we are in the process of trying to um, build that uh, family tree and identify some people who might be of a closer relationship to our potential suspect. That's, uh, you know, it's fascinating because you have to have some sort of evidence or whether it's DNA or some sort of a sample, right? Correct. And so what were you able to, to get from the scene or from the person, from the body of Sherry that helped you with this? Well, there's a male DNA profile recovered from the victim. And would this be like bodily fluid type stuff? Yes. Okay. Oh, and yes. then... Um, and then that's that was plenty that was enough to get you started then correct so uh back oh the mid 1990s when dna became very very common they they uploaded that profile into codis and there's no matches in codis but it did lead to a match of another victim in another state well and that doesn't seem too uncommon with the fact that it, the 10 is probably one of the biggest major thoroughfares, you know, in this part of the country, right? Correct. Correct. Was there evidence that you were talking about uh, Sherry was found in the desert near the on-ramp, so out in the dirt. And I've seen plenty of that because I've traveled the 10 many times. And we're talking about that back in 1993, was there a fence of any kind? Uh, did the person walk out there or did they both walk out there? Were there footprints? How did they get out there? I don't recall seeing uh, that they re that they documented any footprints uh, in the in the area, but it, she wasn't very far off of off the side of the side of the road, and um, and I don't recall off the top of my head. Um, I, I know there was um, significant decomposition, but I'm not exactly sure um, how long she had been out there at that location. Okay, guys, I want to pick that up too. Let's uh, talk more about that. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM six forty. KFI AM640 heard everywhere live on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory, and this is Unsolved. For more on this case and others, go to KFIAM640.com, keyword unsolved.
We're talking with Mike Thompson, Jason Corey, about the 1993 death of Sherry Herrera, a woman who was found in the desert, strangled to death, uh, 50 miles east of Palm Springs, actually the eastbound on-ramp to Hayfield Road. Uh, before the break, guys, we were, I felt like we were getting really deep into the, uh, the forensics part of this, and I was asking you questions about how Sherry's body got out to the middle of the desert. You said there was no indication of footprints at this time, but let's go back a little further then. Do you have any kind of a timeline? When was Sherry last seen and where? Go ahead. Uh, Sherry was last seen uh, March 25th, 1993, at a truck stop in Tulare. And then she's recovered five days later with evidence of decomposition on March 30th. In a very... You had mentioned that you'd driven that stretch of road. You know how once you go east of Palm Springs, right. you are isolated until you really get to Blythe. That stretch of road, it's not uncommon at all for truck drivers, travelers, RVers, just to pull off the side of the road to take a break, take a nap, et cetera. Yeah, and then the heat on top of that, uh, that speeds up the decomposition. So was the medical examiner able to estimate how long she'd been dead? I don't believe so. Several days. Several days. So, I mean, it, again, going back on March 25th is the last time we know her to be alive. So, um, so now as a cold case investigator on this, going back to 1993, last seen at a truck stop, is that, do you actually now, do you, there's really no need to go up to that truck stop per se, is there? But how do you, where do you go from there? Well, I, I think in this case, the, the most important thing is the is the forensic genealogy to, to keep working that angle. And certainly, I mean, that is something that that we we would be I and mean, we don't we don't rule anything out. I mean, we'll take a drive and we'll go we'll revisit these areas, uh, look at them just for our own personal, um, you know, knowledge of, of these of these areas. So that way, uh, you know, we're better educated about about these things. But with the with the, the DNA and knowing that it, it belongs to a um, you know, a certain, a certain, um, um, well, with the, with the DNA, we're able to, the, the forensic genealogy would just come into play a little bit, a little bit more. So, um, let, you know, let those guys work their, you know, use that investigative tool to narrow those down. And then from there, um, once they have, if they can put together a, a list of, of people that we can go back out and talk to, then we'll, then we'll go, uh, we'll go talk to those folks. Have you interviewed anybody on this case so far? No, no, we're, we're really trying to work the DNA angle on it. Can we identify who that person is and then develop that person's profile? What, what takes this person to, um, to our victim? What takes this to the other victim? Is there a nexus between them? Um, and where is our suspect living? What is he doing for work? We, we suspect he could possibly be a truck driver or, you know, maybe he's just a traveler who uses the I-10 corridor for personal purposes. Which complicates things even more. Well, like you had mentioned, we, we had mentioned, I mean, she, she was a prostitute. And unfortunately, she wasn't in a great place in life. And frequently, law enforcement is accused of not caring about a victim because right. she's a prostitute. But those present a lot of unique challenges. If I did not come home tonight and I get reported as a missing person, you could ask my friends, my family, my coworkers, where was Mike? Where was he going? Oh, he was going to go meet Steve Gregory here at RSO. 
well, did he show up? What time did he leave? Where did he go? Did he use his credit card to buy lunch? What, and, and back then they didn't have the cell phone technology and things like that, but, but un unfortunately, and, and yeah, prostitutions changed the advent of the internet, but you go back to the 90s, a prostitute working a truck stop, she gets into a car of somebody that she probably doesn't know, somebody that probably her friends don't know to go to a destination that she doesn't know about. Is she going to go on a long drive across country or are they just going to go down the street for a sexual purpose and then return? And so when you try to talk to her friends, who was she with? Where was she going? You encounter those problems that you don't typically encounter on a traditional missing persons investigation. You don't have a financial footprint to follow to see where did they go? Where did they go next? Where did they go next? And unfortunately, they're in a circle of friends who are sometimes in the same bad place that they are, where typically they don't cooperate with law enforcement, or maybe they just don't know. I saw her get in a truck with somebody. Who was it? Oh, I don't know. What was distinctive about the truck? I don't know. How long was she going to be gone? When was she going to be back? And you just don't get those types of information. And so reconstructing what happened, when, where, why, and how can be very challenging. Forensic genealogy, you know, something you're really leaning on, and it's fascinating to me that you even, you said you might have a suspect profile, but this information is only as good as the data that's inputted into it, correct? Correct. So how do, how do people, I mean, do I just submit my DNA to this database? How does that work? Well, there are a number of direct-to-consumer kits, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, MyHeritage, FamilyTreeDNA. If you have completed one of those tests already, you can download your DNA and submit it to GEDmatch. GEDmatch is uh, an online resource, a clearinghouse where people can submit their DNA for comparison between, because obviously Ancestry doesn't talk to 23andMe, doesn't talk to MyHeritage, and et cetera. So I, I understand I'm asking some people to do things that might make them feel uncomfortable by submitting their DNA in a GED match. They might be identifying a cousin, a second cousin, some type of family member identifying them to law enforcement. Sherry Herrera was not in a great place in her life, but she did not deserve to ha what happened to her. She was viciously sexually assaulted and murdered. And nobody deserves to have that. She's entitled to have the person who did this held accountable and for their actions. Gentlemen, I wish you the best of luck on this. This is, sounds like a complicated case. It sounds like it's, it, you've got a lot of variables and just a lot of roadblocks, but I wish you all the best success on this one. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank, Thank you, you guys. Coming up, the Christmas night shooting of 2016 in the city of Riverside. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM 640. <laughs> KFI AM640 heard everywhere live on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory and this is Unsolved. For the first time, surveillance video has been released showing an attack on two people in a car in the city of Riverside. It happened in a residential area. This is the case of the Christmas night shooting of 2016. We're joined now by Riverside Police Department Officer Javier Cabrera. He is a spokesperson for the Riverside Police Department. And we're talking about a shooting from 2016, happened Christmas Day of 2016. So first of all, Officer, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it very much. Uh, let's 
let's start with an overview of the case. So tell us about the shooting that day that, in, that involved a, a carload of people and just shooters that came out of nowhere. Just give us a background. Yeah, this actually occurred on Christmas Day in 2016 at about 10, 10.09 p.m. Uh, the victim, her name is Cassie Verrett. She was sitting with a male companion inside uh, her vehicle on First Street between Main Street and uh, Orange Street in our city. They were sitting inside the car when all of a sudden, three uh, Hispanic males walking on the sidewalk without any notice, you know, all of a sudden produced handguns and began firing into the vehicle. Uh, Cassie was able to uh, start the car and didn't realize, I guess she had in reverse, you know, sped, hit the car behind her and then was able to drive away and then realized that she actually had been hit. There was blood inside the vehicle. And uh, she, just, she was able to drive herself and her companion to the hospital where they were treated for their injuries. So, what time of the day? This was at night? This is at night, about 10 o'clock, a little shortly after 10 o'clock at night. And so, were you initially able to get information? About, how were you able to find out? I mean, Cassie survived? Correct. Right, so she was able to give you sort of, a, of an overview of what happened. And you said she didn't realize she had the car in reverse? Well, yeah, she said it all happened so quickly uh -huh. that when, when the shooting started happening, she just wanted to get out of there. And she had said she didn't even know the cars were in reverse. She, just got on the gas, the car went backwards, she hit a car that was behind her, and then just threw it in drive and then drove out of there. You were talking about First Street between Maine and Orange. What kind of an area of town is that? It's a, it's a residential neighborhood. Oh, so is it just all homes around there? It's some more townhomes. Yeah, there's some homes, townhomes, different types of uh, residences there. And were there streetlights? I mean, was it illuminated? Uh, yeah, there are, there are streetlights there. So. Unusual, I mean, obviously a shooting out of nowhere like that, a random shooting, or was it random? We, we'll get to that in a moment, but um, is it unusual for that kind of a shooting to happen in this kind of an area of town? Well, you know, some some acts are, you know, we consider random acts, but we are not, right now we really don't know if this was just a random act. We're trying to, we were still trying to figure it out that night. Um, tell us a little bit about Cassie. What What is she, uh, what does she do, who is she, and what's her background? You know, I. I really don't know much about Cassie. She's just a family girl. And uh, uh, how old is she? I believe she was 22 at the time. 22 at the time. She's almost. I believe she's almost. She's 28 now. Yeah. Okay. So she a family girl and correct. We don't. Yeah. She doesn't have any type of gang affiliations. Uh, the person she was with in her car, we believe he might have had some gang ties. So that you know we're not 100 percent sure because we don't have anybody in custody to confirm anything. But. Uh, we, we have strong suspicions that they were possibly targeting him, and unfortunately, he was collateral damage. Was he a, is he a boyfriend or was a boyfriend? At the time, I believe he might have been her boyfriend. We're not 100% sure. And then what were you able to get from him? It, it sounds like he wasn't hit at all then. Or, or he, he was grazed by a bullet. He had some like a small graze, and he was treated at the hospital and released on the same night. What were you able to get from him? We uh, interviewed him, got some information, a uh, description on suspects, what he believed with the suspect, suspect descriptions. Uh, he was fairly cooperative for the, towards the beginning of the uh, investigation. And what about his background? I mean, was there anything about his behavior or, or uh, anything that led you to believe that he might be involved in a gang? Uh, after they conducted some uh, follow-up investigation, they, I can't confirm it tonight, but there are, there are some type of gang uh, ties mm -hmm. that he was involved in. Did that make you guys suspicious right off the bat? Well, you, you know, you we're assuming that, yeah, there are definitely, most likely he was the target. Not Cassie. So uh, we're talking, by the way, with Officer Javier Cabrera with the Riverside Police Department. 
about a shooting on Christmas 2016 happened in the evening hours in a residential area of Riverside. Uh, you're, we're kind of going down this gang path because uh, uh, you, you said there might be some affiliations of some sort with the boyfriend of this Cassie that was hit. Um, the the gang affiliation, well, let me back up then. How many documented gangs do you have in Riverside? I'd have to look look that up, but we have we have quite a I mean, we have some quite a few. We have some gangs. Yeah. I'm not going to admit we, we do have some sure. gangs in the city. Uh, active? I mean, to the point where it's it's a problem, or is this just or do or do these gang related crimes crop up and then they die down? Correct. Yeah, we we don't comparable to like other cities like L.A. We, mm -hmm. we don't have that big of a problem, but but the problem still exists. Yeah. Um, so. You know, and I know you weren't the investigator there that night. You, you, you're just you're sort of recounting the story for us. So uh, I know that you may not know a lot of the, the nuances of it. But what were you able to get from him other than a suspect description? Was there any indication or suspicion uh, based on his body language or anything that might have led you to believe that, that there was something more to this? No, that Nothing? night, no. We didn't get anything from him. So now you've got Cassie, uh, who is... You say she was in her 20s, early 20s at the time. 22. Was 22. Yeah, and what 22. about the, the man, the young man? Uh, you know what? I really I don't have that information right now. So fast forward to today. Um, then have you had to, now that you released this video, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, coming up, but have you been able to talk to Cassie again or this boyfriend again? Have you been able to get anything new from them? We talked to Cassie and uh, some family members of her. Hers and then, but we have not been able to. We didn't talk to the to the male companion. Are they still together? No, they're nope, not okay. together. They don't even. She doesn't even know where he's at, or oh. she hasn't got a hold of him or anything. Now, um, when you talk about this residential area, were there any other crimes, or is that a uh, what sort of your crime map? Uh, what does your crime map look like for that part of town? There's been some uh, crimes in that in that particular area. Some gang activity in that area. And so when you that, say gang activity, can you be more specific? Just, you know, diff different types of crimes that we, we could possibly label as uh, gang-related well, types thefts, of crimes. robberies, assaults, murder. Assaults, yeah. yeah, shootings, things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's a big neighborhood, so it's just that particular street, maybe not, not that particular street, but the actual neighborhood, the surrounding areas. Yeah, we've had shootings and different things that are possibly gang-related. And what about the demographic for that area? What's the demographic? Usually that area is predominantly predominantly uh, Hispanic and African American. Okay, uh, socioeconomic. I mean, is this a, a wealthier area of town? Is it a not so wealthy area? I would say like middle class. Middle class. Yeah. Okay, so m typically probably very quiet neighborhood, working class families. For the most part, yeah. Yeah. So this is an unusual occurrence. Yeah, I would say that. Okay. When we come back, we're going to talk more about this shooting in 2016. Uh, happened on Christmas Day. And in the city of Riverside, we're talking with Officer Javier Cabrera. But first, this is Unsolved with Steve Gregory on KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640 heard everywhere live on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Steve Gregory, and this is Unsolved. We're talking with Javier Cabrera. He's an officer and spokesperson with the Riverside Police Department about a shooting. Uh, 
not really sure if it was random or targeted, but it was a shooting in, on Christmas Day 2016. It actually took place around 10 o'clock at night in a predominantly uh, middle-class neighborhood of Riverside. And before the break, you know, we were talking a little bit about possible gang affiliation between the boyfriend of the woman that was driving. And um, you said you were not really sure yet that there might be, might not be, it wasn't really determined. But now what kind of brings us together is you've released a video that shows Cassie throw the car into reverse, you know, rush backwards. It shows what appears to be the guy's opening fire. Um, so this is a video that you just recently released, um, in, you know, in the month of April. Right. Why now and not then? Okay, back then when the actual incident occurred, uh, we were actually working and investi doing uh, several investigations while when the incident occurred. Mm. One of the investigations was a homicide. And uh, two or one or, or maybe even two of the uh, suspects on this video that we obtained that night, uh, their physical characteristics and uh, different things led us to believe that they might be the same people, might be related. Oh. So then we were kind of like, you know, it we'd probably compromise the investigations that we were already deep into if we released that video. So that's when we decided not to release that video because of the ongoing investigations that were taking place. Well, that's kind of interesting. So then, and I suppose, and I'm, and just correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm presuming that since there was no death included, or involved rather, in this shooting we're talking about now, that it didn't seem to be as big of a priority as solving the homicide prior. Well, it's still always a priority, you know, because this is somebody's, somebody's daughter, it's somebody's family member that, and it, we st it's still always a priority, but we still have to maintain the integrity of the other investigations and we don't want to compromise that. That's a tough spot to be in. It is. Wow, I don't think I've heard of something like that where you've had to sort of stop one investigation in favor of another because the information might be the same in, in both cases. Right, where we really stop the, uh, her investigation, we, we continue to work diligently with what we had. Okay. It's just the actual video we couldn't release to the public. I see, I see, okay, that makes sense. So then, um, if you've released the video now, some, what, f uh, six years later? Correct, almost six no, years. Yeah, almost six years later, yeah. So, are we to take from that that either you solved the previous homicide or you just hit a brick wall? You know what, the previous ones, I, I'll be 100% honest, I, I'm not 100% sure if, if those were actually solved. There's a possibility they were. I oh. would have to research by, by the actual report number and, and go back. But and somebody go. gave the green light for the release of the video. Correct, then. meaning that it would no longer be a compromise, oh. those old investigations, yeah. Interesting. I, I hope you can maybe, maybe tell us about that because I'd still like to know how that came to be. That's so fascinating. Um, so now, explain, because you know, obviously people are listening, explain what's on the video. What did the video show you? The video shows, uh, obviously, uh, Cassie is parked inside her white Malibu along the curb when uh, first one Hispanic male appears. He's like a heavy set of Hispanic male. He appears walking kind of ahead, kind of looks like he's like uh, checking out the, the whole situation, checking out the scene. He's walking first, and uh, as he walks past her car, the other two Hispanic males follow behind him. And as right as the other two Hispanic males reach the front of the car, on the side, as they were passing along the side, along the car on the sidewalk, that's when the heavy set Hispanic male turns, everybody pulls out the gun, and they start opening fire on the vehicle. And where did the, the rounds go through? The windows, or how, how, where did it go See through? See in the video, it shows them going through the front windshield. Front windshield. It go through, the, I believe, the side door. The car was hit multiple times, and we found a total of 
uh, ten uh, ten spent shell casings at the scene. Ten spent uh, spent of within three weapons, three Correct. guns. Correct. So it looks like they shot ten times. Yeah. Wow, um, it's miraculous that yes that nothing more happened to them. It was. It truly was, especially with her, because she uh, she got hit three times, and it was just she's fortunate that you know she's still here with us. And so, what else uh, did the video show you? Did were you able to get an, enough of a description of the suspects? We have a description, correct. And like I said earlier, the video was not released to the public, but it was released internally. And so how in did you department. use that internally then? And you were talking about the previous case. So so did you, how did that work? Did you reach out to other investigators in the department and say, hey, watch this. Do you know these guys? Correct. What we do is we'll release it uh, uh, department-wide for our sworn officers. And then a lot of times, it's a lot of, uh, our department has very proactive officers. They're constantly out there and they, contact a lot of people and along these years they, they'll be they'll know they contact so many people that remember names they remember where they live and then in this case a couple of our uh, former gang intelligence uh, detectives saw the video and they like you know what they it resembled some people they they might have encountered in the encountered in the past mm -hmm. so they also we had now a couple of persons of interest and where did that take you well um once we established, you know, the persons of interest, then we, we uh, were able to uh, put together photographic lineups. We actually put, uh, we were able to put uh, three photographic lineups at three separate times for Cassie uh, to the victim to uh, look at the photographic lineup right. with one of the persons of uh, interest in it, and she wasn't able to identify anybody on any of the three occasions. And the male companion participated in two of them, and he also was not able to identify anybody. Do you think that's a, 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 how soon after the, the incident happened that, that you had to line up? And the, the only reason I'm asking that, officer, is because I'm curious that, is this a case of, based on your experience, of, uh, of the trauma still, or, or do you think they just didn't get a good look? You know what, it could be both, a little bit of both, because uh, sometimes either, it, two things could happen. When something traumatic like this happens to somebody, they either have a spitting image of the person, they won't forget their face, or it'll be the complete opposite. Mm. They won't remember. So that's the, that's the unfortunate part when they don't remember exactly. In this case, you know, there was some street lighting, but it was a little, you know, it could have been a little dark. It might have been hard to actually get a, a good look at their face, and it probably happened so quick. As soon as she heard the gunshot, she's probably like trying to get out of there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those things. So the persons of interest that you had, um, is this a case of where you just let them go and that's it, or do you put any surveillance on them? No, we did all that. There was uh, the persons of interest uh, led to search warrants at the residences, parole searches, probation searches, surveillance, and unfortunately, it just it didn't go anywhere. It just dead ends. Were these guys clean? For for this particular case, yeah, we didn't find any weapons. Oh, but they have history. Correct, yeah, but for this system. particular, we were not able to mm -hmm. put this shooting, you know, them as the shooters. So what is it you want from the public? You know what, just see the video, maybe you recognize somebody, maybe you've heard something, maybe, you know, you never know. Somebody might have said something, you might talked about it, you heard somebody talk about it, you just never know, so we're hoping that maybe showing this video might shed some light, maybe some, some new set of eyes will see something and they can, you know, we can get some new leads and uh, reopen this case. Well, of course, people are free to and should be encouraged to call the Riverside Police Department. If you'd like, though, you can also hit pound 250 on your cell phone and say the keyword unsolved and leave any information there. We'll make sure that investigators get that. So, 
Officer Cabrera, thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. And uh, good luck. We, we hope that you can solve the case. Awesome. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it. Unsolved with Steve Gregory is a production of the KFI News Department for iHeartMedia Los Angeles, Robin Bertolucci, Program Director, Chris Little, News Director. The program is produced by Steve Gregory and Jacob Gonzalez. The digital producers, Andro Mamo, the field engineers, Tony Sorrentino, and the technical director is David Calloway. Coming up next, it's coast to coast, but first, this is KFI AM640. Time now for a news update. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit.